Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day, which is why I love having these geeky conversations with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This week, I am joined by Pinha Shir, who is the Associate Professor of Ancient Cultures, and we are here to talk about his course, The Stories of Jewish Christ Among the Rabbis. Let's start first with the idea that all kinds of people in the Gospels are calling Jesus a rabbi. What is it that Jesus would have been doing that would deserve that kind of title from people in the crowds? So what does it mean to be a rabbi essentially in that era in the first century CE? That's really a good way to ask the question because the truth is, Rabbi is a term that gets to be developed over a long period of time. It really is born really in that era. Nobody quite knows what it means to be a rabbi just yet, because that has not crystallized. What we can see the best from all the evidence we have, and we have just bits and pieces essentially from that era, is that the rabbi was this itinerant teacher. Uh, anybody who was schooled and trained in teaching the Torah, anybody who can explain it well in an educated way, connect all the dots and give the proper commentary, sort of say, break it down and connect it to the Jewish people history, to all of the things that went on before in the Halachat, that's the person who was a rabbi, a person who can basically masterfully deal with those issues and passages and reason through them, work through them. There are some what we call methods of rabbinic interpretation, which play into it. And these are traditional that have been around for a while. They weren't really cold, though. It's just traditional Jewish exposition and interpretation that the rabbis tend to use. And I guess that's what makes them rabbis. That's what makes them teachers. The fact that people listen to them and the fact that they expect those types of explanations from them. So while in the hearing of the modern person, a rabbi is this religious dignitary who leads services and does circumcisions and weddings and burials and things like that, uh, that has nothing to do with a first century rabbi because there is no established system like that. There is no ordination. There is just this loose term, essentially, you know, a teacher. But then there's many other kinds of teachers. But we're specifically talking about a teacher of the Torah, the teacher of Jewish tradition, who really follows in this tradition of teachers that have been there since the days of Babylon, perhaps, because that's when the community was undergoing a significant change and a challenge to its environment. Think about it, being torn away from your land, being torn away from your country, from your language, from everything. And all of a sudden you find yourself in a foreign environment and you have to survive. And so you begin transmitting the lore and the tradition and the language and the culture and the customs in a foreign environment. So this is kind of where this idea of synagogues comes about. This is where this idea of these community centers outside of the temple really comes to be. And this is where the idea of the rabbi comes in. Because a rabbi is not a priest. 
rabbi is technically speaking as a lay person, if you think about it that way. The priests, they were to educate people in the temple. They were to lead people through the worship service uh, officially. They were the teachers of Israel. But of course, in an environment like that, in Babylon, in exile, you're not going to have functioning temple. You're not going to have priests functioning that way. So this new idea of this religious teacher who is not su such a teacher based on heredity, but really a teacher based on skill, based on their mastery of the text, that's when it's born. And really Jewish uh, tradition undergoes a lot of changes through that period where Judaism or Jewish worship becomes much more text focused also where before it's all about sacrifices, it's all about rituals in a temple, but now that you move towards more text-based worship, now you have this new emerging class, this new group of people who can teach the text and explain the text and interact with the text in a masterful way. And that's really what this idea of rabbi comes from. So you mentioned early on that the idea of rabbi, that it's still developing in the first century CE. So is there a time when the title crystallizes, it, where the ideas that have been forming since the Babylonian exile through the first century, where it's really crystallizing and it becomes something specific? Or is that something that just continued through hundreds of years to develop? Well, it, do, it does continue to develop. It's, it's kind of a uh, and in some ways, maybe it's still developing. The truth is that if we look at antiquity, if we actually look for evidence of this term rabbi and how it's being used, we have a few inscriptions, basically stone inscriptions, tombstone inscriptions, columns, places like that. They were primarily discovered in Israel, most of them around the city of Yaffa, actually. And they would be dating to the first century to the end of first century, maybe the beginning of second century, that's the carbon dating. And so we have a few inscriptions with this term Rabbi, okay? But of course, they don't really tell us more than that, that simply a person was called by such and such title or name. And uh, we know what it means. We can, we can trace the etymology, okay? Rav means great, much, many in Hebrew. And so Rabbi is my great one meaning a person whom you respect, a person who has much to give, a person of substance. So really a teacher, that's what the teacher is, is somebody of substance. So we can trace that. But besides a few inscriptions from the first century, actually the New Testament is the primary place where you find the earliest evidence for this term, for the title. People would think like, well, the rabbinic sources, of course, are going to talk about it. Yes, but rabbinic sources are later. We're talking about second, third century. Yes, uh, Jewish documents from second and third century do talk about what a rabbi is, and so and so is called rabbi, and they talk about ordination and start beginning this whole tradition, but that's second, third century. Actually, the earliest mentions of the term rabbi in history, New Testament, it, that's the place. And uh, it's funny for people to think about it that way, that such a Jewish term really would find be found in New Testament, but as ironic as it is, New Testament is the source for this original term. The earliest written uh, documented record that comes really from the Jewish milieu. And that's, uh, that's where we see that. So the, really the beginning of the definition of the rabbi starts with the New Testament because that's the earlier source. And we do have to look at Jesus because he's constantly being called rabbi. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, we kind of set him up as a model, and he becomes the model of, of what rabbi is supposed to be. But then there's other people. You'd be surprised John the Baptist was called rabbi too. 
And when I say that, most people are like, what? John the Baptist? Exactly. So you read this in the gospel, the disciples of John come to him and they call him rabbi. I know we don't think of John the Baptist as a rabbi because whatever mental image rabbi you have, you know, it's some guy wearing a black hat with curls or something like that. Maybe you think of a Hasidic rabbi, you certainly don't think of John the Baptist that way because most people see John the Baptist as this guy with a crazy hair wearing animal skins or something like that. I mean, he looks more like a caveman than a rabbi. So when I say John the Baptist is a rabbi, most people are like, what? What are you talking about? Again, because in our minds, we're not thinking like ancient people. We are, we're thinking more, we're projecting our modern idea of what the rabbi is and supposed to be. And so most people, uh, when they think of rabbi, they, they think of this, you know, official office that has schooling. Then you go to school, you get your graduate certificate, you have an ordination ceremony. And that's how it happens for modern rabbis. And that's not exactly how it was for ancient rabbis. Even in the Mishnah, as you read, the descriptions, they say that so-and-so found his disciple and he made him a rabbi. Okay, what did he just do? <laughs> maybe he prayed for him. Maybe he did something, you know, uh, but we don't really know because those types of ceremonies and customs and traditions don't become crystallized till, until much later in history. So really, we're back to New Testament. If the position of rabbi is developing and morphing over time, then is the position of the student also morphing? Like, it, what do we know, especially from the Gospels, about what the student role is of the rabbi, those who are, I mean, we could say the disciples, but even the crowds that are calling him rabbi, is there a, a role, a responsibility they now have by recognizing that he is one of the great ones? Yeah, well, at a different level of students, of course, in the synagogue, there's a traditional environment of learning. And a lot of times as the scriptures receive their moment of exposition where people are being given explanations, that a lot of times it would come from a, you know, a priest, perhaps in the community, or it would come from uh, maybe a Levite, maybe it will come from uh, one of the rabbis, one of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are known for being the teachers in the synagogues. Uh, so that was their role. Essentially, they were the rabbis. And rabbi does not run the synagogue, by the way. It's the community that runs the synagogue. In the New Testament, we meet this figure called Arch Synagogas, which basically means the leader of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue, whatever you want to call him. But the idea, this is the president of the, of the body. You know, this is the, and he's usually a local communal leader. And you may actually have a rabbi come from another town and teach. And then another one will come from another town and teach. And so there is a responsibility on students, but there's different types of students. In the synagogue, everybody learns because that is their worship experience. But then there's some who show promise, perhaps they become followers, they become closer to the rabbis. They who have some of the same abilities, perhaps they can develop and hone in on those abilities and they can become true disciples or true students. And they would become the future rabbis. And those would be identified in a variety of different ways. But what we do know, people have gathered their formal disciples who would follow them. And it wasn't so easy because they had to learn for an extended period of times. So there was tuition to pay. They were expected to support their rabbis. So if you didn't really have money to pay, that might not happen. So what was remarkable about Jesus, he was the rabbi who didn't ask for tuition. He didn't want to be sought by others to become their rabbi. He just said, come follow me. Right. And, and that was it. So uh, that's a kind of we don't really have any type of records or indication that he was asking for tuition at all. 
maybe there were some donations involved and things like that, but that was completely voluntary. And so it wasn't such a formalized process where in the Mishnah we read about some rabbis who actually do charge fees to their students. And that is how they continue to exist and uh, continue to learn and grow themselves. So the different levels of students uh, and of course, different levels of responsibility. And we have to kind of recognize that, that what we see in the gospel is the general population a lot of times comes to Jesus. They're not true followers in the sense that they don't actually follow him, but then he has that small group, the inner group are the ones that he called and he invests into them and he trains them very specifically. And there's always capacity for that room to be, uh, for that, uh, there's always, an, sort of say, a possibility of that group being enlarged, but he begins with the original 12 and that's, that's what he does. I'm glad you mentioned them because in a previous podcast, just a couple weeks ago, I talked to Nick about the women who financially support Jesus. And so it's interesting to think of if Jesus is not asking tuition or like billing his disciples to follow him, he does have others who are around who are paying those fees and who are also following him and learning from him. Yeah, there are different levels of students. And so what we're not used to, I guess, and I think this is a very Western thing, is not really realizing how egalitarian society was in that uh, point. And so women had opportunities to listen to him. And we have lots of women in the Gospels who clearly are his disciples, although that is not how they're going to be portrayed in a lot of sermons and commentaries, but they clearly are. And they're listening to him and they're contributing to him. They're serving him and financially supporting him as well. And they're enjoying a very, sort of say, intimate instruction a lot of times, the kind of instruction that would be available only to those inner circle uh, people. And so essentially, a lot of times we just focus on the 12 apostles, right? The 12 disciples there, and they're all guys, but there are women there too. And, and that's something, again, goes against the grain of a Western culture that's so focuses on, on that type of leadership. I think in ancient Israel was a lot more egalitarian. And we do see that even among the rabbis. Guess what? Some of the wives of the rabbis are also involved in Torah discussions and sometimes they even set their husbands straight. So yes, that's an atonement too. Uh, yeah. that, that happened in that community as well. So we have to be realistic in that sense. When I am traveling with people in Israel and we look at ancient synagogue buildings, they often ask me about the division between the sexes in the synagogues. Like more recent synagogue buildings, ancient designs also included balconies, especially in the larger communities like in Capernaum. But if we pay careful attention to the work of Hannah and Shmuel Safrai, who did an in-depth inquiry into the earliest writings and the earliest synagogues, we find there was no such thing as a woman's balcony or a division between the sexes. That developed later. And it often surprises people who have assumed a practice they see now was also true of the ancient community. See how our modern assumptions can be read back into the text? Now I mentioned the earliest of the writings. What does this even mean? Maybe we should define a couple terms, like rabbinic sources. What does that even refer to? So in the study of the New Testament, when we're talking about using rabbinic literature or rabbinic resources uh, to study, really what we would most often refer to is Mishnah. Mishnah is the most relevant, the closest document. Mishnah is a very interesting writing 
although the traditions of Mishnah are basically discussions of rabbis on all sorts of various topics about life and observance and scripture interpretation and sometimes parables and all sorts of sermons. I mean, the amount of material that they discuss is just amazing. And it seems kind of very disorganized, but they have a point. And, and so what's amazing about that material is that even though they actually write it down in second century sometime, the discussion begins much earlier because there's this idea of oral tradition in Judaism that floats around for a long time. And it goes from the teacher to the student, from the teacher to the student, and it just continues to circle around the community. And the stories are being told and retold and reshaped for generations. And this goes on from, I don't know, fourth century BCE. And, and it just travels kind of these traditions uh, migrate from student to teacher, and, and as they become teachers themselves, they pass them on. So when, when the rabbis sit down to compile some of this material, they're telling stories of their teachers who are telling stories of their teachers. So we have a lot of oral material that finally makes it into a written form, and it's actually no way for us, no, it's impossible for us to trace it where does the story really began. We don't have proof. But we know that some of the stories we hear are quite ancient. Some of the commentaries that we hear are way back. And some are maybe contemporary to those rabbis. That's like their stuff, their original material that they're talking about, that they're working through in light of their historical situation. So when we're talking about rabbinic materials, a lot of times in the study of the New Testament, particularly Mishnah is important. And, and that's a, a major uh, document that was recorded. Oh, wait, so before you move, move on, I want to ask a little bit about the Mishnah. Because we have this oral tradition, and I don't think that we should say it's not a reliable tradition because it's oral. You know, there's something that's quite solid about this tradition. But I mean, Jewish tradition has been passed down orally for so many generations. It actually is quite sophisticated. To say that it's not reliable is, is really to show ignorance because you can go to yeshiva today and you can ask Jews to sit down and recite pages and pages and pages and pages of Talmud completely from memory, word for word, and you can check them. Guess what? It works. It has been working for so many generations. It's been proven to be very accurate and very reliable. It's just that we don't rely upon it in our modern world with papers and written records. We don't memorize massive amounts of material in our head. So because that's foreign to us, that doesn't mean that, that they weren't capable of doing that. I think it was actually quite effective uh, in how oral tradition was passed down. I do believe it was accurate. So I wouldn't dismiss it as inaccurate. I think that's not right. Some things do get lost in transmission. So there's always a little bit of a poetic liberty, creative adaptation. And so these things do play in. So you can't say that, oh, it's exactly what it was said was transmitted. There always is a little bit of that playroom. And if you are able to trace something a little bit more concrete, like documents, then you can see that play. Then you can actually see how the story does change a little bit from time to time, while the main components actually do remain sometimes word for word. And that's what we have actually in the Gospels, is an oral tradition that's finally becomes written down. It just doesn't happen to be oral for a very long time. That's the difference. You mentioned that the Mishnah contains parables. And one of my favorite courses when I was doing my graduate work was comparing this massive wealth of 
rabbinic parables to the parables that Jesus told. And I think that course was the first time I really realized that Jesus was doing what everyone else was doing and pulling from parables. So is it the same, the parables that are in the Mishnah, is it fair enough for us to compare Jesus's parables to those? Or do we have to be very careful to say, maybe a century later, rabbis were telling similar stories? Well, we know the stories are ancient and we know that some of them go way, way back. So um, the way I look at it is it's like a genre of literature. It's like, uh, do people do borrow from each other? But we all tell the same stories in the same way. So I tend to look at the parables that Jesus tells in the Gospels in very similar ways to how I see rabbinic parables. And I actually love comparing them. And I do that in the course actually quite a bit, where I would quote a parable and I'll tell you exactly where it comes from. And I will tell you a story. And then I will show you the parable from the Gospels. And, you, and I would actually say, okay, what's similar, what's different? And what I'm most, most interested in, what I find to be most peculiar, is to see the methodology. Sometimes the content is a little bit different, like the symbols may be a little bit different, but the methodology of how it's being used, how it's applied, it shows to a very developed and actually sophisticated system of interpretation. But there's a method of how you tell a story. And there's always a place for the punchline. And so by understanding the method, you can look for those little elements. And so if you want to understand a parable, you know, then studying other parables is also very helpful. And so not limiting yourself, for example, to the parables just of Jesus and the Gospels by studying other parables of other rabbis of that era again. And maybe they were written down a couple hundred years later, but it's still the same type of parables that other disciples remembered and passed on. I think it's a great wealth of information because it gives us reference points that we otherwise would not have. We're not looking at Jesus just as his own kind of unique island onto himself. We're reading him in context of a greater culture, which is how things really happen in the real world. Yeah, you were, you're amazed by the connections that you were able to make. And I think a lot of people are as well. And so for that purpose, I actually do bring quite a few of those into the course. Yeah, which I think is such a valuable gem to the course that you teach. Because you set out and focus primarily on the methodology, it's like giving people a way to understand parables and then sets them free to continue to go and look and explore. And I think that is so valuable. That's kind of my own personal methodology is teach a man to fish sort of thing. <laughs> and then besides me having to explain everything to people, I think I'd like to teach them how I understand it, what the mechanics behind breaking it down. And then they could do the same thing in their own study. So kind of giving people the tools uh, to use. And so rabbinic literature is a tool in the study of the Gospels in particular, in my opinion. Some people shy away from it and they say, oh, it's much later, it's anachronistic, you know, you're really taking things out of order. Jesus said this in first century, these rabbis are talking about this stuff in second century, third century, sometimes fourth, fifth century material that I bring into the study. And I say, look, some of these traditions are much more ancient than Jesus. Uh, just because they were passed down orally for such a long time, doesn't invalidate them. So yes, the truth is we don't know when they started, but it's fun to compare them and to open up these avenues of, of possible connections that we can find, because that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to grapple with a very ancient text written by people who did not think like we do. And so just to have these points of reference, it allows us greater assurance that we're on the right path, that we're following within the right stream of logic, so to say. And that's what I think studying rabbinic materials to me 
personally helps. For more conversation about what rabbinic material is and if or when there is an overlap with the Gospels, join us for next week's episode of Israel Bible Podcast. We get into the Talmud and the differences between the Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmud, along with other terms like halacha and midrash. What are these things? This all leads us back to the Gospels and how to understand Jesus among the rabbis. So don't forget to like us or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify, or wherever you happen to get this podcast. You do not want to miss out on future episodes. And to dive deeper into Professor Shear's idea, sign up for his course using the link in the episode notes. If you like what you've been hearing here on the Israel Bible Podcast, would you let other people know about us by sharing a link to this episode on any of your social media platforms? Thank you for helping us spread the news about what is available at IBC. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds you hear. And thank you for being curious about the world of the Bible. 